know, I got his book, and I've started it. I'm looking forward to the rest of it, and I appreciate Pastor Bobby sharing in uh, Sunday school as well today and, and with all of you. I can tell that Bobby uh, loves you, and I can tell that you've loved Bobby, and I can tell Pastor Bobby was a wonderful pastor for 29 years here and uh, left a wonderful church uh, uh, for me to serve at now. As I need to give you an, some instructions for later. You know, I shared these. Uh, in your bulletins, you have prayer cards, prayer cards, and I gave those to you last week, and they're in there again today. At the During the closing hymn, you're going to be able to put down uh, names of people who you want to pray for who need Christ, and you're going to come forward, and during the closing hymn, put those in these boxes up in front of these steps. So keep that in mind, and, and hopefully you take this seriously. No one... I believe this. No one comes to know Jesus as Lord and Savior except by somebody praying for them. Having said that, uh, to jump into the sermon, you know, we prepare for everything, don't we? We prepare for everything. And successful people especially prepare. You know, there can be a lot of talk about preparation. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Covey and uh, Tim Burns and I, Timothy Burns and I have talked about that book a lot lately. I have the spiritual gift of administration, and I am very scheduled and very type A. I like to prepare. Walking into a, a, a service or a situation unprepared can really probably make my anxiety rise and, and maybe force me to trust the Lord. So if you want to work on my sanctification, put me in situations where things are not prepared well. I have been on overseas mission trips, though, and you do have to be prepared when you go there, to not be prepared, <laughs> to be a little bit disorganized. You know, we could talk about preparing for school, preparing for a job or a trade or a trade school. We could talk about planning as well. You know, if you're going to run a 5K or a 10K or a marathon, which is 26.2 miles, or an ultra marathon, which I think is 31 miles, I haven't done that yet, uh, you want to prepare, right? I mean, you just can't go out on the streets and just start all right, I'm going to run 26 miles, go to Pittsburgh the first Sunday in May, try it without preparing. You can go online and you can find marathon training schedules. And during, the, during your training, you're supposed to be running something like 20 miles straight once a week and 50 miles straight. It's great because you have an excuse to eat anything you want. They even have pancake dinners the night before the marathon. They call it carb loading. It's great. And so I ran three marathons, and I went to do another one. I, I, I don't say that to brag or anything, because the only way I could do that is because I was obsessive, compulsive, in a disorder with training, okay? And I needed to do something to lose weight, because I do not eat good. Bobby told me for a while he would only eat one meal a day. I tried that. I got hangry. And then you can get tangry, too. That's tired and angry combined. Hungry and angry combined. I see food. I'm, I'm not good with diet, okay, especially chocolate. I love it, okay. But, you know, a few years ago, I was going to do another marathon, and so I signed up for the Hall of Fame marathon. And I started training. You have to prepare, right? So I started training, and I'm running, and it's mid-February, and I'm going out to run 20 miles at 10 o'clock at night and uh, maybe 9 o'clock at night because it was about 1230, and I finish, and it was cold, and I I sat down, when I got inside, I sat down, and I'm drinking Gatorade or apple juice because I had this fear of going to bed and waking up with Charlie horses. I don't really like Charlie horse. If he's your friend, 
more power to you. I hate waking up with, with leg cramps and Charlie horses in my sides. So I'm sitting there trying to refuel. And I thought, why am I doing this? This is stupid. <laughs> so I emailed the Hall of Fame and I said, I don't want to do it again. And so I switched to a half marathon and really didn't even do that. Because I didn't have it in me to do the preparation. You have to prepare. You know, how do we prepare for death, though? You know, we will all die at some point, and this is, a seri- this is serious. And it, it, it is an event which we must be ready for. We must prepare. Some people prepare by planning their funerals, and that's great. Do that. But do we prepare on the spiritual side? And isn't it fitting that we talk about this a week and a half after Billy Graham went home to heaven? And they structured his funeral service on Friday like one of his crusades. You know, and Billy Graham, even in 2006, gave the gospel message and said something like, are you ready to die? Are you sure you're ready to die? You know, do we prepare for death? Few, few, too few people prepare by repenting and turning their life over to Jesus. But for the Christian, death is not to be feared. I like what Philip Yancey wrote, and I'm going to read that, and then we'll jump into this. Philip Yancey wrote, reflect a few moments on this poignant illustration between birth and death. Each of your individual deaths can be seen as a birth. Imagine what it would be like if you had had full consciousness as a fetus and could now remember those sensations when you were born. Your world is dark, safe, and secure. You are bathed in warm liquid, cushioned from shock. You do nothing for yourself. You are fed automatically, and a murmuring heartbeat assures you that someone larger than you fills all your needs. Your life consists of simple waiting. You're not sure what to wait for, but any change seems far away and scary. You meet no sharp objects, no pain, no threatening adventures, a fine existence. One day you feel a tug. The walls are falling in on you. Those soft cushions are now pulsing and beating against you, crushing you downwards. Your body is bent double. Your limbs twisted and wrenched. You're falling upside down. For the first time in your life, you feel pain. You're in a sea of roiling matter. There is more pressure, almost too intense to bear. Your head is squeezed flat, and you're pushed harder, harder into a dark tunnel. Oh, the pain, noise, more pressure. You hurt all over. You hear a groaning sound and an awful sudden fear rushes in on you. It is happening. Your world is collapsing. You're sure it's the end. You see a piercing, blinding light. Cold, rough hands pull at you. A painful slap. Wow. Congratulations, you just have been born. Death is like that. On this end of the birth canal, it seems fearsome, portentous, and full of pain. Death is a scary tunnel, and we are being sucked toward it by a powerful force. We must be ready. We can be ready by knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior and taking the spiritual world seriously. My theme today, hell is real and so is heaven, and heaven is free. Amen? My purpose is to explain the reality of heaven and hell and challenge you to share the gospel. As, you know, I was studying for this, it was pushing me for 
again, the driving serious need to share Jesus with people. It's studies show that most people, most committed Christians, will never share the gospel in their life. They never will. They show it again and again and again. And why not? You know, and I am convinced that it's, the, it's a United States problem. We do not have to fight to survive like people once did. Not like in the Dark Ages, not like in the Middle Ages, maybe not like South America now. Maybe that's why Christianity is moving southward. There's a book called The Next Christendom with statistic after statistic after statistic that Christianity is moving to the southern hemisphere. China will soon outgrow America with the most Christians. But as we start this sermon, think about our broader series. We've been talking about the study of God theology. And theology is also not taken seriously in America. I like what I read by A.W. Tozer. He wrote, that theology probably receives less attention than any other subject tells us nothing about its importance or lack of it. It indicates, rather, that men are still hiding from the presence of God among the trees of the garden and feel acutely uncomfortable when the matter of their relationship to God is brought up. It's so true. It's the study of God. That's what theology means. We have the opportunity to study our great and awesome God, and we don't. <laughs> Why wouldn't we? God communicated to us. I remember Dr. Bill Brown. He works with the Colson Center now. Uh, for the biblical worldview and focuses on that. He was a president of Cedarville University when I was there. And he was talking to an agnostic. Agnostic means uh, you believe God cannot be known. And he told this young guy, young man, he said, well, if there was a God, do you think he would communicate to us? And the young man said, yeah, sure. <laughs> well, here it is. <laughs> God communicated to us. Lee Strobel wrote, and I think it's the book, The Case for Faith, about somebody saying, why doesn't God just write the message, you know, on the sky? Well, God has. It's called general revelation. Isaiah 65, 17 through 18. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create, new, I create Jerusalem. Rejoicing in her people for gladness. I'm not going to focus a lot today on hell per se, uh, specifically. We'll talk a little bit about it. What I want to talk more is about uh, uh, the consistency of our theology. See, hell is consistent with our theology of salvation and theology proper, which is a theology of the character of God. You cannot take apart the biblical view of hell without taking apart theology, period. You cannot do this. We want to do it all over the place, but you can't. It lacks logic. It is illogical. The reasoning is, is lacking. Two years ago, I was talking to a hospital chaplain. We were planning an Alzheimer's symposium, and I said something like, well, you know, people need Jesus because he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by him. And the chaplain said something to the effect, well, if you believe that. Now, it didn't surprise me because I've heard, ho not hospital chaplains, I've heard the most liberal of theologians say things and get into ideas such as universalism, the view that everybody goes to heaven. 
I've heard that before. But that time, it weighed on me all day long. And I had a small group at my house that night, and I shared some thoughts. You know, our theology is consistent. It's logical. It fits together logically. And when you can't just take apart one theological principle or truth without tampering with the rest. And I'm going to show you that here in just a moment. You can't do that. Hell exists because we serve a holy and righteous God and we are sinners. So taking apart our view of hell changes the truth of a holy and righteous God. You can't do that. You've got to do something with that. If you're going to do that, okay, tell me how you reconcile the Bible. The Bible is a meta-narrative. That means it's one grand story composed of many smaller stories. And all the stories come together for one central message. And I'm going to share that with you in a minute. Taking apart our view of how it changes, the truth of a loving God who hates sin. There is sin because he is holy and righteous. There is sin because he loves us. And sin hurts God and people. Taking apart our view of how it changes, the truth about God's wrath. God's wrath is listed some 700 times in the Old and New Testament. Taking apart our view of how it changes, the truth about humanity needing blood to atone for sin. It's all through the Old Testament. They needed a sacrifice for their sins, and animals were not enough. So God sent his own son, Jesus. Taking apart our view of how it changes, atonement. Jesus' blood repaired our sin problem. Jesus' blood satisfied God's wrath. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. Taking apart our view of how it changes propitiation. These are all theological words, okay? Uh, We've talked about some of them. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross appeased God's wrath and reconciled us to God. This is all what's called soteriology, the theology of salvation. If you take apart your view of hell, you take apart the rest of the theology of salvation. Taking apart the view of hell changes redemption. We need a redemption. We needed redeemed, which carries the idea of being bought out of our sin problem. Taking apart our view of hell changes justification. This is a legal term which carries the idea of being declared righteous. God sees Jesus' righteousness in us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is on the screen. He made him, being Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Taking apart of how it changes sanctification. When we are saved, we are being set apart for God's glory, and we are set apart for God's glory. Sanctification is an instantaneous declaration of God, but it is also a gradual work where God is making us more like him. Taking apart our view of how it changes, sin. The Bible t- teaches that we sin against God. Psalm 51.4, against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. This means that if we alter the biblical view of hell, we alter the biblical idea of the holiness of God. Because we need atonement, we need propitiation, we need redemption, we need justification, we need sanctification. We cannot just change one theological truth without messing with the rest. It doesn't work. Either God is not holy or we are not sinful. But we are sinful and God is holy, therefore we need a sacrifice for our sins or there is hell to be paid. 
All these theological teachings fit logically together. Creation, we were created good. Fall, we fell from God's grace through sin. Redemption, Jesus is our redeemer. Consummation, someday God will make all things right. Hell exists because we sin against a holy God. This is consistent with the Bible. And by the way, the meta narrative of the Bible is this. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. All of the Bible can be summed up with those truths. So let's talk about hell just for a minute. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this idea of Sheol, and this word simply means the realm of the dead. Dr. Ben Witherington has shared with me uh, the following. He's a professor at Asbury. 1 Samuel 28, we hear about Samuel's shade or spirit being called up uh, from Sheol to be consulted by the medium of Endor. And Samuel is none too pleased about the summons. But he is not depicted as having been in either heaven or hell. He is simply in the land of the dead. And the term is Sheol. This concept of Sheol continued on well into the New Testament era. And may well represent what Paul believes about where people have gone who have died but who are not in Christ. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's 2 Corinthians 5.8. The New Testament idea of Hades is comparable to Sheol and is a temporary place of the dead. The actual idea of hell is not until the final judgment, 2 Corinthians 5, the Bema seat, and we see that in Revelation 20. That's the actual lake of fire that burns forever. But there is a hell written about in the New Testament. And Jesus is perhaps the one most clear about this place. Jesus calls it Gehenna, and he compares it to a stinky garbage dump in the Hinnon Valley, south of the city of David. And like a garbage dump, it's where the worm does not die, and the fire never goes out. And there are people expected by Jesus, by Jesus, who go there. As a parable the rich man and Lazarus shows in Luke 16. Granted, Ben Witherington, I'm, this is an exact quote from Dr. Ben Witherington. Granted, this is a parable, which is an extended metaphor, but it is surely referential. And it indicates the rich man is in an unpleasant place, and there is not remedy. There's an unalterable divide between the bosom of Abraham and the place where the rich man currently resides in the afterlife. The parable teaches that how we live in this life has consequences for where we end up in the afterlife. And this must be taken seriously. I encourage you to read Luke 16 at a later time. So Gehenna was a place in the Old Testament where people would sacrifice to false gods, even sacrifice children. And even if you read through the Old Testament, even the Jewish kings did this. One source tells me the worship of Moloch in which infants were sacrificed in fire to the god Moloch also occurred in the Valley of Hinnon. Jeremiah announced that the Valley of Hinnon would be the place of God's judgment. The valley also became the place where refuse and dead bodies of animals and criminals were burned. As a result, Gehenna became synonymous with eternal punishment, the fire of hell. It became synonymous with this idea. It describes a punishment connected with the final judgment, a punishment that is eternal duration, not annihilation. In the New Testament, it was a garbage dump, and that is the image Jesus gave for hell. And within the Bible, there are several references about hell, which are metaphors. But a big major part of this idea of hell is absence from God. 
absence from God in and of itself will cause hell. Now, God is not literally absent because God is everywhere, but with hell, God chooses to keep his presence absent. And we have never seen a place without the presence of God. Listen, the world is anti-God, but there still is some amount of common grace everywhere. God, God has given even the worst of people in this world some amount of common grace and some amount of consciousness and goodness. But however in hell, God is absent. I want to skip to heaven. Heaven is a real place. And if you read Randy Alcorn's book on heaven, it's just called Heaven. It's in our church library. It, it takes, you can't, there's no single book of the New Testament called Heaven. That might make it easy for us. But what you have to do is you have to systematically take all the passages from Genesis to Revelation 22 and look at what they're saying about heaven. But what has happened is people, Christians, throughout the centuries have made it as if heaven is not real. Or we make it like it's not tangibly real. It's just a spiritual place. And, it's, and you don't have real bodies. You're just floating on a cloud. But Randy Alcorn shares, if things in heaven are only spiritual, then why does God use so many material objects to illustrate what we'll have in heaven? Material objects like house, dwelling, clothes, rooms, white robes, rivers, gardens, tree of life in heaven. We see all of these. So, you know, we also see Revelation 2, 7 and 22, 2. refers to the same tree of life. That was physical in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2.9. Heaven is a real place. Jesus reminded the disciples to pray, our Father who is in heaven. You know, and Randy Alcorn coined a term, and he called it Christoplatonism. What he's saying is that Christians have mixed Platonic thinking from the philosopher Plato, which teaches that the body is bad and the tangible items of the world is bad. And Christians have merged Christian thinking with Plato's philosophy. And when we've done that, we've robbed Christianity of its greatness. Christianity teaches that someday we will be in a new heavens and a new earth, and they will be real places, and we will have real bodies. I was meeting with a church member at my church in Alliance, and um, I said, he said, I don't believe heaven's real. I think we just have a soul, and, you know, we don't have real bodies in heaven, just a soul. And I said, well, the Bible teaches that we're going to have real bodies. And he said, I know, but I don't believe that. So, again, we have to deal with our illogical faith. <laughs> you have to reconcile our beliefs, which may be unbiblical, with the Bible's beliefs, which are the inspired word of God. And the Bible teaches that heaven is a real place. So let's have some final applications. Desire heaven. In 2 Corinthians 12, we see that Paul had been to heaven, and guess what? He wanted to be back. He wanted to go there. 2 Corinthians 5.8, he says, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And again, Paul had been to heaven. We could listen to him. <laughs> he had been there. Colossians 3, 1 through 2. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Why do we focus on the things that are fallen rather than the things of heaven? 
think on heavenly things. Pray that God gives you a heavenly vision of reality. Desire heaven. Study heaven. That's where we're going to when we die. Right away. Your last breath on this life will be your first breath in heaven. I really do believe Helen is worshiping God in heaven right now. As well as all who die in Christ. Dick, worshiping God in heaven right now. As a final application, believe the gospel and share the gospel. Romans 1.16, you know, I pray that this is our desire. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is a power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 15.20, Paul says, And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. This is amazing. Paul wanted to take the gospel to Spain. He wanted to use Rome as a staging point to launch the gospel to Spain. He wanted to take the gospel where it had not gone before, to the unreached people groups. Do we care? Do we care? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.16, For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Do we have that passion for the gospel that everyone knows Jesus as Lord and Savior? Or as I think as Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, they can go to hell but only over my dead body. Do we care that we see dead people when we're out there? I mean, they're alive, but without Jesus, they are dead in suffering the punishment for their sins without Jesus' blood to take care of their sins. Jonathan Edwards said, this world is all the hell that, is a tr- that a true Christian is to ever endure. And it is all the heaven that unbelievers shall ever enjoy. This world is the only hell that we, if we are in Christ, will ever endure. But for the unbeliever, it is the only heaven. So we need to share Jesus with them. We need to pray that they know Jesus. General William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, once told his students, if I had my choice, I wouldn't send you to school. I'd send you to hell for five minutes, and you'd come back real soul winners. Last week we had those prayer cards in the bulletin, and they're there today as well. I encourage you, if you have not written a name in there, write the names. You can put as many as you want in these boxes. And I want to leave these boxes up here for a while, maybe forever, maybe till Jesus comes again, as a reminder that we are collectively praying for people's names in these boxes to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. I really believe, you might fold them in half as I can tell. I really believe people do not come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior without being prayed for. I like what Billy Graham said, and I'm going to misquote this, but you'll get the gist. He said, after I die, you will receive news that Billy Graham has died. He said, you don't, don't believe a word of it. I am, no, I am more alive now than I ever have been before. I have just changed my address. We can change our address in Jesus. And we need to pray that other people do as well. Start praying. And once you start praying for those lost people, and I'm sure you're probably already praying for them. I'm not trying to say you don't. Watch for God to give you divine appointments to share Jesus with them. You know how you make heaven rejoice? Luke 15, 10. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Heaven rejoiced when you came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. You can make heaven rejoice by sharing Jesus with another person. And when you share, we're going to have more evangelism training. Don't get discouraged if they don't receive Christ. 
You may start sharing Jesus with somebody, and they may totally be angry at you. Just stop. Don't push. Don't push. You may bring up God, and you can tell they are not receptive for that conversation. It's not a divine appointment. Move on. But you may start talking about Jesus with somebody, and they are really wanting to have a conversation. I believe those are divine appointments. They may not be ready to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior right there. That's fine. Whether they receive Christ or not is up to between them and God. You are just the messenger. They might shoot the messenger. That's okay because you go to heaven. And by shoot the messenger, I mean they may get angry with you. That's okay. They got angry at Jesus. Jesus said, blessed are you when they persecute you. Acts 5.41, the people left rejoicing when they were persecuted. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Let's pray, and then I'll invite the praise team to sing this, uh, lead the final worship song, which is going to be Take the Name of Jesus with you. As they start singing, please come forward. And just, just go back to your seats for the benediction. Unless you don't feel led to come forward, that's up to you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray that we believe in you as Lord and Savior. I pray that we are trusting in you as Lord and Savior. I pray that we are committing our lives to you as the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father except by you. Lord God, I pray that we are, have confessed that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We need you, Jesus. And if anyone here has not done that today, believed in you, committed to you, confessed their need for you, trusted in you, I pray that today, talking about hell and talking about theology will be the day of salvation. The day when they turn their lives over to you. Jesus, we know it's about eternal life, but we also know you help us today. You help us today. Because we have the hope of the world. We have you, Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit with us. We have you, Jesus. You will never leave us nor forsake us. You will always be with us. We have the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. May today be the day of salvation for some here. Lord God, but may today be the day for a conviction, a compulsion to continue sharing the gospel with other people. To pray that people know you as Lord and Savior. And during this final closing hymn, convict us of names to write down and put them in the box. And we're going to keep on praying collectively for the names in this box. Jesus, you know who they are. You know who they are. Holy Spirit, I pray for convictional opportunities, divine appointments for us and others to share Jesus with them. And then we will celebrate with the angels in heaven when they come to know you as Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please stand if you're able. I'll let Steve and them lead now. If you'd like the handbook, number 238. Or 231.